0: Take your copy of God's Word and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 11. Just a test. A couple of you passed. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not committing ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. We'll stop there for this this sermon. As we know, 2 Corinthians is a defense of the ministry of the Apostle Paul, specifically his apostolic ministry. And he is defending himself against false teachers that had infiltrated the church in Corinth. And he's actually touched on a number of subjects up to this point, far too many to rehearse by this time. We're obviously in chapter 5. But as of late... He has essentially been answering the question, Paul, how can you continue to work for the Lord when things have been so bad for you? Primarily persecution, but other things as well. Paul's answer, God's promise of the future drives me in the present. God's promise of the future drives me in the present. In other words, Paul's eschatology, his his understanding of future things, specifically the resurrection in this text. His eschatology drove him to work for Jesus, to carry out the ministry that had been assigned to him by the Lord. Paul had absolutely had it rough. Being constantly persecuted for the cause of Christ really more than we can imagine because it seems like it's at every turn. And yet, nevertheless, in verse 6 of chapter 5, Paul says, we are always of good courage. In spite of all of that, we are always of good courage because Paul knows what's coming. Sooner or later, he knows what's coming. Either Jesus will return... And Paul will be caught up together with the saints in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, at which time his body would be changed and this perishable body would put on that which is imperishable and this mortal body would put on that which is immortal. Either that's going to happen or, if that doesn't happen, Paul's going to die and he would then be away from the body and be with Jesus. Either way, Paul wins. And so he's encouraged. There's really no reason to get discouraged, at least not in light of eternity. Not in light of eternity. But Paul always keeps one more thing front and center in his mind. Before eternity fully sets in, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or So Paul's apostolic ministry, which he's defending in this book, his apostolic ministry will be called into account. And it will be judged by the righteous judge who knows everything. And so he remembers that. That's where we left off last week. The title this morning is Controlled by Fear and Love. Controlled by Fear and Love and love in this text we will see that Paul is controlled by two driving forces one negative so to speak fear and one positive love i think you'll see what we mean when we get into it so paul begins here he says therefore so this is this is directly linked to that message about the judgment seat of christ in which the saints will be judged for their service therefore Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. The old authorized version that I came up hearing renders this knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And I think, due to that translation and my poor understanding of the context, I can be honest. I think I misunderstood exactly what Paul is saying here. I, I thought that Paul was saying that he was motivated by those outside unbelievers who would one day face the wrath of God, which will absolutely be terrorizing. And while that is true, unbelievers will stand in their sins before God. That's likely not what Paul means here. Therefore, he says, so this is connected. Whatever he's explaining here is connected to the previous text, the judgment of believers at the judgment seat of Christ. Paul lived his life in view, in light of final future judgment. He served Jesus with zeal, knowing all the while that his ministry one day would be put under a microscope by the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. So Paul, in this text, is the one fearing God. Paul is the one with that reverential fear of the Lord that drove him into the world to share the gospel with sinners. You may recall... Back in Romans 3, as Paul has that lengthy description of man, natural man and his depraved state, he ends that entire list by saying, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Romans 3.18 However, the saved, the spiritually wise, have a healthy fear of God. Psalm 111, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have a good understanding. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Proverbs 15.33, the fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom and humility comes before honor. I could have named a ton of other passages that talk about the fear of the Lord. It's mentioned a number of times in the Bible as an attribute of God's children, but also as something that is lacked by those in the world. Paul here says that it is the fear of the Lord that motivated him to carry out his duty daily that he was tasked with by Jesus, knowing that he would be judged for his service at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the fear of the Lord is not terror. In in other words, we don't walk on eggshells like we are scared of God. That's not what's going on here. This is more of a a reverential fear, something that Ananias and Sapphira lacked. This is a reverential fear, a, a respect for God, in that we want to please Him. He is our loving Heavenly Father. David Garland writes this, quote, Fear refers to a religious consciousness. A religious consciousness, end quote. Moyer Hubbard, though he really hits the nail on the proverbial head. Here's what he says, quote, To fear the Lord means to value His approval above all else. Its antithesis is the fear of man, end quote. That's it. Rather than fearing what others may think, which by the way is just natural for us, rather than fearing what others may think, we are to live in fear of what God thinks. And in that sense, we fear the Lord. And that's what drove Paul to persuade others. Now there's just no doubt really in this text that Paul's desire to persuade others refers to his sharing of the gospel his intense preaching of Christ and him crucified but paul had a heart for people he wanted to see people saved but ultimately it is his fear of the lord that drove him to do the things to please the lord h a ironside said this, quote, If we learn to live as Paul did with the judgment seat of Christ before us, we will not be men-pleasers, but we will be Christ-pleasers. End quote. Amen. 100%. And despite the accusations leveled against Paul by the false teachers, and regardless of the fact that some of the members of this church apparently believed those accusations, Paul writes, but what we are is known to God. What we are is known to God. Paul found great comfort in knowing that God knew he was a man of integrity. He was was sincere. Even if nobody else in the world knew it, Paul knows God knew it. That said, he did hope that this letter would convince the saints in Corinth to at least examine their conscience. Right? So they knew exactly how Paul had lived among them for 18 months. Just look back at how I acted when I was there, Paul says. I I know I've talked about conscience before, but I'm reading a book on conscience, and so I feel like I should mention some things about conscience. Let me offer a really quick explanation. First, God gave us a conscience as a blessing. It guides us in decision making. We make judgments in ourselves of whether our actions are right or wrong. That's what a conscience is. But our conscience is not a perfect guide because we're fallen. Let me explain. For various reasons, mainly the result of religious baggage that most of us carry around, our conscience can actually tell us we're doing something wrong when we aren't, biblically. We know this because we studied 1 Corinthians before we got into 2 Corinthians. And if you'll recall, some of these saints actually were reluctant to eat meat because they believed that it had been sacrificed to an idol at some point in the past. And here's what Paul said to them. He describes those people saying some through their former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat. No better off if we do. In other words Paul says meat is just meat. You're not better off if you you don't Partake, you're no better off if you do. But there were those with a weak conscience that just could not get past it. They were convicting themselves that it would be wrong, when in fact it wasn't. Their conscience was not a good guide because their conscience wasn't calibrated properly. They did not need to violate their conscience. Paul's not telling them that. But they did need to calibrate their conscience to the Word of God. So our conscience takes work. It needs help. Now on the flip side, a person's conscience can actually become hardened to sin. And it can be taught to approve something which is actually biblically wrong. That's going on in our world today. I mean, we live in a day when professing Christian people are approving of all kinds of things that God actually clearly calls sin. And you may hear those people say something like, well, I'm not convicted about it. As if that's somehow the final authority of right and wrong, your conviction. Their conscience may not bother them, but that doesn't mean they're innocent. It means their conscience, like the weaker brother, is not calibrated to the Word of God either. 1 Timothy 4, Paul's referring to false teachers, and he says that their consciences are seared. So look, a conscience is a great blessing to us. We shouldn't violate our conscience, but we must be working to bring our conscience into harmony with the Word of God. Martin Luther, when he stood trial before the Diet of Worms, he responded to the demand that he recount all of his writings like this. Here's what he said, Unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor, nor safe, God help me, amen, end quote. He's on to something. I don't think every belief that Martin Luther had was captive to the Word of God because I think he was wrong on a number of things. But in this particular arena, he was right. So I've actually been reading that little book I mentioned. It's it's a book on conscience. The name of it is Conscience, What It Is, How to Train It, Loving Those Who Differ. Good read. You ought to pick it up. Written by Andy Naselli and J.D. Crowley. Here's what they say about conscience. Quote, Because God is the Lord of your conscience, He expects you to mature, He expects you as a mature believer to gradually adjust or calibrate your conscience to match God's will as Scripture reveals it. End quote. Amen to that. That's exactly what we need. Now, The problem in Corinth is that their consciences weren't calibrated to the actual truth. And they were siding with the false teachers over the Apostle Paul whom they knew very well. And so Paul is asking them to calibrate their conscience to what they had seen of him. His zeal for God, his love for people, his integrity in life, so on. All right, that was three little sermonettes from one verse. So we better move on. Verse 12. We, we are not committing ourselves to you again, but giving you calls to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Now, Paul just says in layman's terms, look, I'm not going through the interview process again. I remember when Steve Spurrier left the University of Florida as the head football coach and he went to coach in the NFL and fell pretty flat when he got up there. Well, when he was escorted out the door from the NFL, Florida was hiring a coach again. They were in the middle of a hiring process. And they asked Steve Spurrier, Well, you can put your name in the hat, but you're going to have to go back through the entire interview process again. And Spurrier, still to this day, is probably the best coach Florida has ever had to be like our Bear Bryant at Alabama. And he said the equivalent of what Paul says right here in this passage I am not going through the interview process again. You know me, and you know my capabilities. That's what Paul's saying. But Paul had planted this church. He had been the de facto pastor for about a year and a half. He did not need to make his case as to who he is. He needed them to stop and take a breath and consider everything that they had seen from Paul while he was ministering among them. He needed them to calibrate their conscience to the truth. Now, Paul speaks of of boasting here. He has this desire that they may... They may boast of him. You know, Paul actually often boasted of churches. He, uh, po- he spoke positively of of churches. That even included the church at Corinth, as messed up as they were, right? Back in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, I give thanks to my God for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking any gift. That's what Paul says about the church at Corinth. Very positive. That's that's what he would call a boast here. He's not talking about arrogant pride. When we think about boasting, that's what we think about. Arrogant pride. That's not what Paul means at all. He wrote to the saints in Rome and he said, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, listen, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. That's a boast that Paul made about the churches in the city of Rome. It's just factual. It's not arrogant pride like we often think about boasting. Paul desires that the Corinthians would once again embrace him as a faithful, gospel, missionary pastor, an apostle of Jesus Christ, one in whom they could boast. Paul actually is essentially restating back what he said in this same book in chapter 1. If you want to look there, it's just a couple pages back. Chapter 1, verse 12. He says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand." just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. We get here to chapter 5. He's just sort of going back to that. He's bringing up that same point again. The problem in Corinth seems to be that some in the church at least were actually boasting of the false teachers, Paul's opponents, Men who were more concerned with looking the part than living the part. They took pride in outward appearance. I think this is where our understanding of first century customs is important. Understand, philosophical orators back in their day, we, we might call them rhetoricians or public speakers, debaters, to them, an important part of their persuasive tactic was the way that they presented themselves outwardly, specifically in fancy clothing. Half the battle was won if they just looked like they might know what they were talking about. We're not far removed from that in our society. Jesus warned his disciples, though, not to be tricked by those t- kinds of tactics. Here's what Jesus says in Luke 20 Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. That was the fancy robes of their day. They love greetings in the marketplace, the best seats in the synagogues, places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense, a show, make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation, Jesus says. They looked the part, but they didn't live the part. These scribes were false teachers. Same thing with the people that are opposing Paul in Corinth. They are false teachers. But one of their accusations against Paul was that he he doesn't look the part. We know that. Paul quotes them over in chapter 11. Verse 10, here's what Paul writes. This is is their words, the opponents, the false teachers. They say of Paul, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. His physical presence is unimpressive, we might say. Paul didn't look the part, but he did live the part. He just was not concerned with such outward appearances. Because Paul knew that the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Paul fully grasped that truth from 1 Samuel 16. Let me put it this way. Paul was unimpressed by a three-piece suit and a Ralph Lauren tie. He simply wanted to preach the truth of God's Word faithfully because that's what matters to God. I think I've told you before, I'd much rather listen to a guy in a pair of jeans, a t-shirt, and flip-flops rightly handle the text of Scripture than a man in a designer Versace sport coat who couldn't preach himself out of a wet paper bag. This is something we actually need to grasp. Because we have a way in our society of presenting ourselves as if we're an authority when we aren't. But I have no authority in this pulpit. The only authority is the text. And if I misrepresent the text, I lack all authority. And that's what Paul is driving at here. God is far more concerned about our heart, our motives for ministry. And so we need to serve Him and serve others with a thankful heart. Our motives should flow out from that. Then Paul says in verse 13, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. This verse actually was a little confusing when I first read it. It may seem that way on the surface, but I think it's actually easier than it first appears. Most likely, Paul is dealing with a complaint against him, an accusation that some had said he was beside himself. For if we are beside ourselves... Actually, the Greek word here rendered beside ourselves is the same... Word used that the, that the crowds used during Jesus' ministry to say he is out of his mind. That same, same word here. Some apparently were saying that Paul had lost his mind. And so it says that Paul is saying, Look, even if I have lost my mind, as some have said of me, I'm doing it for God and He knows my heart. That's the point. But Paul had not lost his mind. That was a false accusation. Paul wasn't out of his mind at all. He was actually speaking the truth with perfect clarity. And what he was speaking was good for the saints in Corinth. Paul was actually willing to endure these false accusations for the good of the church. Look, I don't don't want to paint your church leaders here as martyrs. We have not in any way endured the things that Paul has endured But we have been called heretics and apostates and even reprobates because of our pulpit ministry here at this church. I know that may seem odd to you, but that has in fact happened. It's not to brag. I don't want you to feel sorry for us. That's just par for the course when you're a leader. You're the one that takes the brunt of the complaints. Well, look, Paul is, is using that animosity against him actually to validate his faithfulness to God. Now, that's not a perfect measure. But in Paul's case, it was accurate. I say it's not a perfect measure because just because we get pushback doesn't mean we're being faithful. Joel Osteen gets a lot of pushback. And he deserves more than he gets because he is far from faithful. He is preaching heretical doctrine after heretical doctrine. So when we are accused of something, we would be wise, it would be right and proper to examine those accusations in light of Scripture. But in Paul's case, he was innocent of these charges. Look, false teachers hate the truth. They hate the people that stand against their heresies. And perhaps their most common response is to attack those who expose them as unorthodox. At least that's what was going on here in Corinth. All right, verses 14 and 15. This will close us out for today. But don't start packing, there's a lot to unpack. For the love of Christ. Controls us. Because we have concluded this. That one has died for all. Therefore all have died. And he died for all. That those who live. Might no longer live for themselves. But for him. Who for their sake. Died and was raised. There's a lot. (laughs) There's a lot. Packed into these last verses. I've actually put a reasonable amount of effort trying to whittle it down to a small bit of information, believe it or not. You might not believe that in 30 minutes, but that's a fact. I've I've actually tried. Now, the first part here is the simpler part. Paul says the love of Christ controls him. Back in verse 11, it was the fear of the Lord that caused him to persuade others. In other words, the knowledge that he would one day stand before the judge of all the universe to give an account for his ministry drove him to daily, faithfully serve Jesus. But here, rather than the fear of the Lord, it is the love of Christ that encouraged Paul. It's the love of Christ that controlled his actions. So this text that we're looking at today offers two driving factors in Paul's life. Again, one negative, so to say, and one positive. The fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. He was driven by both of these things. Look, Paul never lost sight of Christ's love for him. He never forgot the man he was before Jesus saved him on the road to Damascus. In his letter to the churches in Galatia, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. But Paul greatly desired to please the Lord because he realized Precisely what Jesus had done for him. Dying in his place on the cross. Saving him from his sin, Saving Paul the persecutor. Or excuse me, saving Paul the apostle from Paul the persecutor. Now listen, our story may not be as dramatic as Paul's. But the narrative is still the same. God has saved us the same way He has saved Paul through the finished work of Jesus at Calvary. But it's not merely Christ's love for Paul that is in play here in this text. It wasn't only Paul that Jesus died for. Paul says, we have concluded this, that one Jesus has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who, for their sake, died and was raised. Okay. This is that moment when you need to take a deep breath and just just listen for a minute. The atoning work of Jesus is rarely discussed in any depth in pulpits today. It's just viewed from ground level. You know, John 3:16. There's a lot more to the work of Jesus on the cross than that. For instance, 2 Corinthians 5, right? Here we are. This this verse actually requires me to be clear. Otherwise, we live the unbelieving world in in a state where they may actually find solace in their unbelieving sinful condition. And we don't need to leave them there. They need to know what's at stake. What I mean by that? Well, let's give some background. In Romans chapter 5, Paul is very clear that all humans died with Adam at the very moment that he ate the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. In other words, when Adam sinned, we sinned in him. He was the corporate head of mankind. Some would would use the term he was the federal head of mankind at that time in the garden. Well, The world today naturally stands condemned before God in Adam. And many millions, billions no doubt, will stand before God in the final judgment with Adam as their head, their representative. And they will be condemned to pay for their own sins throughout eternity. However there's another Adam. There is a true and better Adam that we just sang about a few moments ago. The last Adam, Paul calls him in 1 Corinthians 15. And those of us who believe in Him, Jesus, right, He's the last Adam. All of us who believe in Him stand with Him as our head, not Adam. But the greater Adam, Jesus, is our head and we are justified in Him. We are declared righteous before God in Him. In other words, when He died on Calvary's cross, we died with Him. You see, there's there's two groups in this world. Those who stand in Adam and those who stand in Christ. Again, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. well, He's referring to that here in this text before us this morning. So, look, it's easy to get thrown off by the word all in verse 14 because we don't often stop and consider what we're reading. And furthermore, we are a generation of proof texters that rarely ever even think about context, especially if it's some of our favorite verses. Look at verse 15, though. And he died for all. That's Jesus, right? Jesus died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Who's the all in verse 15? Without a doubt in the world it's referring to believers. There there is no debate there. It is for believers that Jesus died and was raised. So we are right when we say Jesus died for all who would ever believe. That's That's a good statement. Look, Paul is not throwing the word all around with several different meanings in this text. All here means in verse 14, what it means in verse 15. He's he's being consistent. Contextually then, the all in both of these two verses refers to believers. Now that makes perfect sense as we understand the representative work of Adam in the garden and the, the last Adam, Jesus, right? We all stand in one of those two men. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Hebrews 10, 14. For by a single offering, Jesus' work at Calvary, He, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He's not perfected everybody who ever lived. He has perfected those who are being sanctified by by the work of God. So what is Paul saying then in these two verses? Well, first, we... As believers, all died when Jesus died. That's what theologians often refer to as substitutionary atonement. In other words, Jesus died in our place. He was our substitute. He died in our place for our sins. When He died, we died. I've been crucified with Christ, Paul says in Galatians 2. Second, believers for whom Christ died should no longer live for themselves but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Now, I could just point you back to our summer conference because we actually just had a number of sermons that examined the importance of the Lordship of Christ. Listen... We were not saved by the grace of God just to keep us out of hell. We were saved to serve God. Or as Romans 8 says, to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's why we were saved. Look, if you made a profession of faith, you you were baptized, you joined the church, but there is absolutely not even an inkling of desire in you to serve Jesus, you have no reason to believe that you have truly been converted. Paul makes clear here how those truly converted to Christ live, or at least try to live. I'm not suggesting any of us are perfect on this. I'm not even saying that this doesn't vary from Child of God to child of God. It certainly does. Some bear a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. That's biblical. But when a person is truly converted to Christ, there is a change. There is a different worldview. And so Paul desired to see people come to faith in Christ, knowing Christ has paid their debt and to see them changed by the grace of God, compelled by the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ to serve Him and other people. That's what He desires. So I shared with you some rather deep theology there, but I'm going to expand on it just a little bit. This is the doctrine of particular redemption it's often called, though I think I have come to prefer the the name definite atonement, which says that Jesus, as our representative head, paid the sin debt of all who would ever be saved, all who would ever come to Him by faith, all who would ever believe, while in contrast, unbelievers remain in Adam as their representative head. And for all eternity, they will be condemned to pay their own sin debt. You see the difference? This is serious language. Now you may say, well, you're just being overly precise. Maybe, maybe I'm being nitpicky. I don't think so, though. This is important. This is what occurred at the cross. This matters. So we need to attempt to speak with precision. Precision. Really quickly, I want to share with you something that John Owen wrote. He he was an old English Puritan from the 17th century. Something he once put together relative to this subject. I wish you had it on paper in front of you. I'd read it just straight as it reads, but you don't. So I'm going to rearrange the order of some of this stuff, but it's all his words. He wrote, The Father imposed His wrath due unto, and the Son underwent punishment for either all the sins of all men, all the sins of some men, or some of the sins of all men. If the first be the case, that is that Jesus underwent punishment for all the sins of all men. If the first is the case, then why are not all men free from the punishment due their sins? It's a good question, I think. Logical question. God would never demand double payment for our sins. If we believe in Jesus, our sins were paid for by Jesus at Calvary. But if Jesus paid for our sins at Calvary, God's not going to again say, now now you need to repay for them. Especially not when Jesus is the one who paid. If somebody went and paid your mortgage off, you'd probably expect the bank to not make you repay for that. We certainly expect more from the Lord of the universe. Owen continued, If the last be true, that Jesus underwent punishment for some of the sins of all men, then all men have some sins to answer for. And so none are saved. Again, logically, he, he's correct. Then finally, Owen writes this, quote: If the second be true that Jesus underwent punishment for all the sins of some men, then Christ, in their stead, suffered for all the sins of all the elect in the whole world, and this is the truth. End quote. So guys, look, we are in good company when we say, Jesus died for the sins of all who would ever believe in Him. Not only Owen, but the writer of Hebrews said the same thing. I quoted it earlier. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It's, it's the same thing that the Apostle Paul explains in this text. Even John MacArthur here writes, quote, "...if Christ died as a substitute for the whole human race..." then every person who ever lived will be saved because their sins have been paid for and divine justice is fully satisfied. End quote. Amen. So Jesus, as our great federal head, paid the debt of all who will ever truly be converted. All who will come to faith. All who believe. While the rest, those who reject the gospel, those who do not believe remain in Adam as their federal head and they will pay their own sin debt throughout eternity. Why does that matter? It matters that we give the lost the right gospel. Listen, if you are a believer in Jesus, this gives you great confidence in the work of Christ. Because if you believe, then your sins are literally paid in full and stamped. It is done. Never to be redone. However, if you refuse to believe the gospel, you reject the work of Christ, you have no hope of your sins being remitted by Him, and you will spend eternity attempting to pay for your sins, and you will never be able to. I know that's deep thinking on the atonement, and maybe it's deeper than you've ever ever thought before. But it's rich, especially to the believer. Look, this is the truth in which you can lay down at night and put your head on your pillow and sleep, because Christ has paid every last drop of your sin. If you'd really like to hear more on this subject, if you really want to deep dive, there's a 14-part series on sermon audio by Mike Riccardi. I've told you about it before. He's an elder at Grace Community Church where John MacArthur pastors. The name of the series is O Perfect Redemption. It's, it's really good. Anyway, Paul and his understanding of the substitutionary death of Christ for sinners drove him into the mission field. That's what he's saying. Drove him into the mission field to persuade others. Because those who believe have Christ as their Savior. And they are no longer represented by Adam any longer. Well, that leads into this last really quick point. We should be striving to persuade others that the gospel is true. That it is their only hope all the while knowing that God is in charge. That was Paul's approach to mission work. Paul rejected the underhanded techniques of the false teachers. He actually mentions that here in our passage. But he embraced his duty to persuade others of the truth of the gospel. So let us be driven like Paul by the fear of the Lord, knowing that one day our service will be judged. And let us also be driven by the love of Christ, because He willingly took our place and paid our sins on Calvary's cross, a debt we would never be able to pay. Stand with me if you will.